This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by the other hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibowitz. Shalom, shalom. And deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Hello from New York. Is, is that how we say it here? Well, you, we all have to identify where we are. Right. Liel's in Tel Aviv. I am in New York. You are next Hello from to me. next to Stephanie in New York. Today on the show, our Jew of the Week is audio producer and podcast guru, Ariel Nissenblatt. And our Gentile of the Week is Andrea Wakefield, who runs Mrs. Rabino's, an Italian restaurant in Wilmington, Delaware, and Liel's favorite restaurant ever. Liel, does that still hold true? It will forever hold true. Will forever hold true. Tradition, tradition. And also uh, the debut of a brand new occasional series called The Archive, in which we explore the collection of the National Library of Israel. To kick off the series, we will be looking at the crazily unknown story of Isaac Newton's obsession with Talmud and his prediction of exactly the day on which the world would end, which I thought was something only 19th century Protestants did. But in fact, no, Isaac Newton beat them to the punch, predicting the literal end of days. Today on Unorthodox, just another happy end times episode <laughs> on Unorthodox. But before we get to Isaac Newton and Ariel Nissenblatt, et cetera, uh, Stephanie Butnick, what's going on in your corner of the world? Okay, so as everyone knows, Edith and I have been getting through the canon of books you read to an almost two-year-old. Mm -hmm. And I've been noticing something that I want to bring to everyone's attention and see. One of her favorite books right now is something she just calls Ham. It's Dr. Seuss's Green Eggs and Ham. Mm -hmm. And she says, ham. And, and one fish, two fish, she says, fish, fishy. So sometimes she asks for ham. And so I was reading this the other night, you know, I do not like She's green eggs and ham. She's asking for the book ham. Well, well th therein lies ah. the, the, the thing that I bring to you guys because green eggs and ham, I'm like, is it weird? Like, if you keep kosher, would you not read this book, Green Eggs and Ham? I like It's just like, I do not like green eggs and ham. I will not eat them, Sam I am. And you're like, ham, ham, ham. And then I was thinking about how The Hungry Caterpillar by Eric Carl, a classic, mm -hmm. the, the page, the best page where he goes through all the foods he ate that week. He was like, I ate a salami. And I'm just like, <laughs> I, I, I thought about it. You know, we don't keep kosher in our home, but like Edith hasn't had bacon. Like, you know, there's still just like stuff she hasn't eaten. You and keep I'm like, kosher style light, eat it for Edith which is kosher. we only eat bacon out. Well, I, to be honest, I actually have really lower. I don't eat that much pork. Mm -hmm. um, we eat shellfish. I don't really think it's like it's. I understand. I don't know. I understand. Um, but you're not making your daughter ham bacon smoothies. Exactly. And so I was like, is it weird that she thinks that ham, like if you were kosher, would you not? I have, my questions are, if you were kosher, would you not read this classic Dr. Seuss book? And then are there sort of entire genres that people avoid like, obviously, ortho, like, Haredim are not reading Dr. Seuss most What likely. I love about this question oh, is... Oh, it's, oh, oh, hold, hold your... Hold your no, it is head. incredibly Talmudic. I will not eat them here. I will not eat them there. <laughs> is the sukkah on an elephant kosher for Sukkot? Wait, is that Bible or Dr. Seuss? Bible or Geisel? You know how everything sounds better in Hebrew? <laughs> okay, sure, we'll bite. <laughs> <laughs> the 100% kosher version of Green Eggs and Ham. Wait. They rewrote it for Israel? Oh, yes, they did. What is it? So I will read it, and then I will... Translate? <laughs> the key is, the book is called 
which translates it, I'm not hungry and I don't freaking like it. (laughs) (laughs) At one time, like, avoids the whole kosher thing and also gives it this wonderfully Israeli, like, so is this a, is this an authorized like, reprint? Oh yeah, that's this the is the Israeli. That's the official so, Israeli version. Wow. First so of they, all, no, I am First of all, I want to know why my Duolingo doesn't use that because that would just make it so much more fun than all this stuff about I would like apple juice uh, meets tapuak or meets tapuz. I like I don't the apple juice versus orange juice thing also, is not. Also, it's so much more helpful to be able to be in Israel being like I don't like this. Yeah, I'm not eating that. <laughs> <laughs> I will not eat this at this table or that table. What I like so much about this, Stephanie, is it's taking the question that we've dealt with before about whether religious people should let their children go to the mall Santa, whether they should watch Elf, all that stuff, and taking it really into children's literature. Like, do you do you expunge Dr. Seuss from your home? I mean, look, as a fellow native of Springfield, Massachusetts, like Theodore Geisel, who grew up on Mulberry Street, not far from where I grew up, and then became Dr. Seuss and moved to La Jolla. Wait, the, the Mulberry Street. The Mulberry Street. Yeah, yeah. So Dr. Seuss is from Springfield. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. We have Friendly's Restaurants, Basketball, Webster's Dictionaries, and Dr. Seuss. And he grew up on Mulberry Street, hence to think I saw it on Mulberry Street. Once he got out of the Navy, I think, and made money, he moved to La Jolla and never looked back. Like, I don't think he set foot in Springfield for the last 60 years of his life. But we claim him. We have the Dr. Seuss Museum right on the quadrangle downtown. And look, I mean, I think he's canonical. I think you keep Dr. Seuss. I think to not, you basically have to be a shkferer chassid to reject Dr. Seuss. Here's the thing. I've thought about this too. And what I've come to is nobody thinks you're going to make kids green eggs. Right. Like mm. th- there's a kind of fantasy element built in when it's green eggs in ham because there are no green eggs. Josh Cross has said you've made green eggs. Your dad did. OK. How do they how do we get them green? Food coloring. Food coloring. Oh, Th- yeah. That, that is a particular. So Josh, producer Josh Cross is saying, oh, my dad made us green eggs. With all due respect to your father. You do not like. That is, <laughs> I do not like. <laughs> that is a particular kind of parent that drove me crazy when I was deep in the preschool thing. It was like, we're going to have a party in which the room looks like Goodnight Moon and we're going to eat green eggs and ham. And the sort of like, look at the fun stuff we're going to do for two-year-olds who won't remember it, but it shows how crafty I am. I'm so creative and crafty and handy as a parent rather than just balloons and cake. But that was apparently your dad. But so you're saying basically the whole thing is farcical, right? Green eggs. Right. Of course nobody's eating green eggs. Of course no one's eating ham. Right. I mean, use this to say like ham is a fake thing that no one has. Exactly. It doesn't even exist. If you see it on a menu, say who would eat that? And why would you eat it with a mouse? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) And and caterpillars don't eat all that stuff. Leo, what's going on with you in Tel Aviv? First of all, I, I will do the most I think Talmudic thing ever to conclude this discussion. And annoyingly correct all of you by saying that I visited that museum and it's pronounced Dr. Soyce. Really? No. Yes, it is. No. They told you that in Springfield? Uh Uh-huh. All of you call it Dr. Seuss and that's okay, but you know, I was like, I love this. This is a new level of ass anatomy. Let me apologize on behalf of Springfield that (laughs) they're being that prissy about I didn't know that. And to think, I thought he was Jew Seuss this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> no, big goy. What? Not a Jew. Dr. Guys, Seuss, not a Jew. But you know what I'm talking about? Yud Seuss. Yud Seuss. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> that is a joke for our approximately 0.3 people listening. That is a much funnier book than he never wrote. <laughs> I do not like it. You do not like it with pure blood. I do not like it. Yes. What is going on with me? See, you know, a, a lot of our listeners wrote rightfully to say that they would they would love to hear more about the situation in Israel. Frankly, I you know agree. I, I also found the events of the last couple of weeks very troubling and sort of very emotional. And so, while I have a very distinct opinion, I, I didn't want to be 
overcome by kind of my immediate prejudices. And so I did what came to me very naturally. I, I traveled here and I spent the last five, six, seven days meeting with really everybody, the protest leaders, the anti-protest leaders, people in the government and people who hate the government, people who don't know how they feel uh, about the situation. There are even some of those left in Israel. It's all very instructive. And, and I, I hope to write and talk about this more soon. But yesterday I had this kind of quintessentially Israel meets Monty Python meets end times type of experience. I went to visit some friends at a think tank that's been embroiled in the affairs the last couple of days. And Earlier in the week, their office had been stormed by this fringe, weird group of like anarchists. So we're sitting in this office and we're having coffee. And there's a knock at the door. And my friend and I sort of look at the door and very hesitatingly, because literally just the day before, they you know, experienced an actual violent kind of attack. We open the door. And it's two dudes dressed up like IT technicians. And we look at them and they look at us. And no one says a word. And then like 36 seconds later, they say, we're IT technicians. We promise you, we are not violent anarchists. And I look at them and say, that's exactly what violent <laughs> anarchists would say. And then everyone just stands there and quiet for like another minute. And then they're like, can we come in now? I was like, yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> and they were IT technicians? They were just two people coming to fix the IT. They were like, we just need to get right into your uh, tech system. Uh, <laughs> we just need all your in. passwords, right? <laughs> we just need your universal passwords. But it was really this Talmudic moment of, but that's exactly what the spy <laughs> said. Good point, good point. Okay, may we proceed. So, guys, what's going on here with me is, you remember a couple of weeks ago, we had the other Mark Oppenheimer in the studio, right? For the South African Mark Oppenheimer, who was passing through New York. Guess where he went after New York City? Your parents' living room. Close. He did not go to my parents' living room. He went in his travels. It so happened to Austin, Texas. And I said, dude, Oppie, if you're going to Austin, Texas, you have to hang with my brother, Daniel. So I connected them and they went out partying. <laughs> and Dan invited, Dan had some dinner going on with some people that night and invited the other Mark Oppenheimer there. And so two days later, I get a photo from my brother. <laughs> Which is him with his arm around the other Mark Oppenheimer. So he's doing the tour. Wait, that's insane. Is that... <laughs> I just say, Mark, at this point, he's like he's like single white femaleing you. Like he's literally replacing he's you. He's South African marking you. He's South African marking you. That's amazing. I will say we did hear from someone who was like, now I get why the other Mark Oppenheimer was in your office. He's going to take over the, the hosting <laughs> spot for Mark. So you want him to change any of your stationery. <laughs> no, we're just franchising. He's just going to have the South African version of Unorthodox. We're auditioning people in every continent. That's amazing. Readers of the Oppenheimer Substack, if words are all of a sudden spelled with you, <laughs> or having extra R-E flipped around or fucked up spelling like this, please know it's been taken over by the other Mark Oppenheimer. Okay, but enough of Oppenheimer's in Austin. Back to Oppenheimer in New Haven. As I said a couple weeks ago, I have restarted the newsletter. It's not on paper as it was during the pandemic. It is on Pixels. And a lot of people, hundreds of people have subscribed, most of them unorthodox listeners, and a lot of them have paid. And I will be taking everyone out for a hot beverage at some point, courtesy of them. And it's just really, it's its delightful. It's like the support is amazing. The people who have gone uh, to markoppenheimer.com and found my link to the newsletter. And um, and I've, it's allowed me to write about some stuff like, you know, to just rehash some old obsessions, uh, why swimming is prohibited in so many public water spaces, which is, uh, and then a lot of Jewish stuff. It's going to, it's like Judaism plus friendlies plus swimmers rights. It's, it's uniquely you and a combination of all the things that interest you. And I like the one about swimming and how you like make it a point to go swimming everywhere. And I'm like, 
I was reading it being like, this is true. He <laughs> regularly goes swimming on like the morning of live shows wherever we are. He's like, I found a swimming hole <laughs> in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> so I, no one was listening to my commentary, but I did. Right, I but did, in your I head, did, I did validate what you in were your saying. Head. And I'm actually going to. They don't know this yet, but everyone in this room, Quinn and Josh and Stephanie and Liel, everyone's going to get pulled in for guest posts uh, <laughs> from time to time. The way that I get pulled in to do take one uh, Talmud commentary on a moment's notice. So that's just been uh, delightful, and it gives you it gives you so many newsletters to subscribe to: the Unorthodox newsletter, the Oppen the Oppen letter, and uh, which I named Oppenheimer. I was thinking about, I had some other names in mind, and then I just thought, fuck it. Like, there's no newsletter just called Oppenheimer. And it's going to be Oppenheimer by Mark Oppenheimer. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J. News of the Jews. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. News of the Jews. Stephanie, what's going on in the Jewosphere this week? Well, it turns out that not everyone is as familiar with the chosen people and their chosen foods as we are because <laughs> there was an amazing Wheel of Fortune fail. I'll tell you what the answer is. Um, the answer was warm toasted bagels with lox and cream cheese, which, by the way, we, we will parse for it. <laughs> like, it's already stepping into like radioactive territory. Cool. Even if you're into toasted bagels, who warm, says warm toasted? toasted? That bagels. just sounds anyway, creepy. Yeah, so there was two letters missing. The G in bagels and the X in locks. And <laughs> So um, it said warm toasted eggles with lot and cream cheese. Yeah, and it, apparently, you know, <laughs> the contestant, uh, someone who's not familiar with smoked salmon, with Nova, with locks, um, they basically said, <laughs> they went with W, low in cream cheese. <laughs> The next clue, by the way, was Abraham, Isaac, and Jaco, and they couldn't get that one either. And then it was, why is this night different from all other? Nah. And uh, basically everyone on Twitter just like went insane being like, I was yelling at the screen. <laughs> but yeah, warm toasted bagels. It sounds, it's like warm toasted nuts. Ooh. You're like, I, who's warm toasting bagels? Look, not, 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 not to be rude here, but if you watch Wheel of Fortune, you're probably 78 and you're probably yelling <laughs> in any way. It's not because the bagels are lost and naked. But again, another testament to the fact that bagels are bullshit and are no longer a Jewish food and now belong. It's 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 a it's a wheel of fortune clue now. No, I will say that the one appropriate call out that I, we received years ago was like the idea that bagels are always fresh is is a privilege in very specific places. And That's so right. for the majority it's of people, you got to taste them. I warm toasted is warm toasted bagels is the most gentile phrase I've ever heard. Warm. It's actually it's it's sort of a hate crime. Um <laughs> I'm, I have a. It's a right up there with challah bread. Yeah, it's challah bread, challah bread, French toast. Warm um, toasted. Pickles. I have a call into the ADL. We'll slice of birthday and slathered at me. <laughs> the um... it's a cream against humanity. Ooh, that... no. this I say no him. <laughs> so, Jeopardy is Jewish. Wheel of Fortune, Goyish. One hundred percent. Yes, that yes. is brilliant. That's a hot, a hot, strong, correct take. I can now retire with pride. Ariel Nissenblad is the original Podmacher. She started the Earbuds Podcast Collective, which is a podcast recommendation newsletter. She has a podcast herself about podcast trailers called Trailer Park, which may be the best podcast name ever. And she's very big on pod Twitter. Also, she has a great handle herself, Ariel This and That. Uh, and she's great, as you will find out 
as you listen to our interview. Here's our conversation with Ariel Missenblatt. Ariel Nissenblatt, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you for having me. I have to say, so on all of your like social things, your thing is like, my last name sounds like this and that. Do Gentiles not know how to say your name? Correct. Never. What do they say it as? Nissenblatt, Nissenblatt, Nissenblatt. Honestly, but like you knew right away, right? Uh, yeah. Nice and Blatt sounds like a great Midtown restaurant. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Nice and Blatt. No, but when I figured out Nice and Blatt sounds like this and that, I bought soundslikethisandthat.com. Which is good because it's like you I have do a whole po- brand. podcasting, sounds exactly. like, it's great. Oh my God, this is amazing. We're just making ourselves legible to Gentiles at <laughs> yes. all times. I'm going to ask the question I'm famous for asking on the show and it makes my co-hosts roll their eyes, which is how do you make a living exactly? Like, where's the, where's the money in what I you do? I have many jobs. Yeah. I have many I'm, jobs. I'm curi- and I'm, of course, partly I'm asking because I'm nosy and curious how people make a living. But I'm actually, you know, when one is in this weird pod economy, like, where's the where's the Parnassa? Where do you make the money? I do a lot. I have a full-time job. I work for a software company called Squadcast, which does remote recording for podcasters. So recording in person is very weird to me. You've never done this before, I've actually. done it literally, <laughs> uh, I did it three weeks ago with another Jew. It wasn't a Jewish podcast, but just it felt just like it had to be, to be Jewish. Um, and <laughs> then the, we say with another New Yorker. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a little more palatable. Cosmopolitan. Yeah. Um, Cosmopolitan. And then I used to manage a co-working space that had a studio in it in Los Angeles. So I'm familiar with the practice of <laughs> seeing people of recording in yeah. person and looking into your eyes. But anyway, I work for a software company. I do community management and content production. So I produce a weekly podcast, a weekly YouTube channel, a blog, things like that. And then on the side. I also do audience development work for podcasters. So if they want to be a guest on other shows in order to grow their show or if they want to set up cross promos and things like that, do social campaigns, like really anything that a podcaster could possibly need in order to grow their show and reach a larger audience, I do. And then on the side, I have a podcast recommendation newsletter that goes out every Sunday that also has a podcast recommendation podcast that goes along with it. And then I have a podcast about podcast trailers. Love it. And then I co-host a podcast about the business of podcasting called Sounds Profitable. Okay. So before, <laughs> before, 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 before I got, I got any follow, further. Can I have the follow-up, yeah. please? So you're how old? Uh, 30. 30, okay. So given that none of these jobs existed when you were 16, what did you want to do when you were 16? I didn't have many aspirations, if I'm being honest. <laughs> I like didn't <laughs> like, know what did? I wanted to do. Right. Who did? Yeah. I mean, some people knew what they wanted. I had no idea what I wanted. I went to college and studied geography, Binghamton, if you're familiar. I'm super into the geography major. <laughs> Dartmouth has a geography it major. Rules. I always envied the people who went to schools. It's with it was a geography the coolest major. thing to yeah. study. I, yeah. I loved actually. I did my thesis on the Kaifeng Jews, which I oh, think amazing. Yeah, I love, love. I always thought it was Kaifeng, but I'm Kaifeng. Ar- I was already wrong. I'm already wrong. Migration. And they're in China. They're like this really cool. <laughs> yes, it's a really fascinating history, and like some of them now live in Israel. It's really really cool. Anyway, I did uh, my thesis on the migration and assimilation patterns of the Kaifeng Jews, but really I studied population and demographics and that whole thing. And then my first job out of college was I worked at the Institute of Southern Jewish Life. We we're obsessed with that. Okay, and they May- just had their new museum. Yes, yeah. this is yes, amazing. Macy Hart. Yes. And, uh, wait, who's the dad? Micah Hart's the son. Yes. Macy's the, Macy's the, the founder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Seriously. I'm really in it, you guys. You were so deep I didn't in. realize until you walked into the studio that we are, this is real. Yeah. I thought you were just like a I pod I could have gone on a bacher. different path, you guys. But you're a Jewish pod She bacher. only goes in person for the when, it's, <laughs> when it is real. You're clearly obsessed with this art form. I love it. What about it draws you so deeply? I, when I was growing up, was never a big reader. 
And I really struggled to sit in the classroom to learn. Never good at math. Kind of thought I was not that smart for a long time. But then when I realized that I could listen for education, I realized that I could pick up and synthesize things just like people who, you know, tend to read. And then I was like, wait a minute, I'm smart and I know the world and I'm actually a good talker and I'm a good schmoozer and here I am. So I just want more people to be able to discover podcasts the way that I've discovered podcasts as a way of entertainment, as a way of learning, everything. So I don't know. I think for me, it's like both education and I like that I'm sort of at the beginning of it. Like podcasting is relatively new still to the really world. Still really new. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's still really new. So I just, I love that aspect of it. I love being at the forefront of things. I love being able to say there are no rules. Like I have conversations with people a lot and they're like, you know, what, what do I have to do for my trailer? Or how many downloads do I have to do in order to be able to monetize? And I'm like, good news. You can make this shit up. It doesn't matter as long as you can back it up, you know? So I like to be able to have that authority. And I think that's what really attracts me to this art form. So what was the gateway podcast for you? Ooh, that's a great question. I was, when I lived in Jackson, Mississippi, so I didn't listen until 2014. When I lived in Jackson, Mississippi, I lived with Lonnie Kleinman, who is now a rabbi in the Philadelphia area. And she would listen to like 99% Invisible and This American Life and The Memory Palace. And I would be overhearing her in the kitchen. And I was like, so rude that she's listening out loud, but secretly like creeping into the kitchen to hear the story. So it was one of those. 99% Invisible, probably, or Radiolab. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't honestly expecting this to be the most Jewish conversation that I think any of us have ever had. Like, this, <laughs> so, so let's go to this. Is podcasting inherently Jewish? Everyone's like, oh, Ira Glass, this hurricaneing. But I think, like, is there something really Jewish in the storytelling? Like, do you connect and this the interrupting, all? the interrupting, the, the fast talking? Yeah, we can't listen. No one listens on one point five speed to this podcast. Oh, yes. We are one point five speed. Uh, yeah, we exist at one point five. <laughs> we're one point five. I actually 1. did 8. have to slow we're down. 1. We're one point eight visible because I usually listen on one point eight, and I did have to go to one point three for you guys. That's kind of beautiful. <laughs> I like that that's slow. We should do a study on that. Yes, <laughs> unlike if Jewish podcasts generally have to get slowed down. Yes. Right. So I mean, does this track at all with your Jewish? I mean, like, what is it? What am I Probably, getting at here? Uh, Jews just love to talk? Jews love to talk. I think chat shows, good chat shows are Jewish. You know what I mean? Like there's this idea that like if you start a podcast, it's sort of like this. It means that you are somebody who just like really wants to hear themselves talk, which a lot of the time is the case. And that can be bad. You know, that those shows can be awful. Like I meet people all the time who are like, you know, my friend, I go on dates all the time. And it's like, oh, you work in the podcast space. My friends always tell me that I should start a podcast. And I'm like, (laughs) I roll my eyes and I'm like, oh, okay, good for you. You know, you're like, check, please. Let's let's see you make it through this dinner. Right. You're not going to be entertaining at all. Right. (laughs) So and then I'm like, okay, but like, what would it be about? You know, and they're like, well, I don't know. I I think we would just talk about anything and everything. And that's sort of a quote (laughs) that I that I come back to. And I'm like, if your podcast has the phrase anything and everything in the in the description, stop now. Or here's the thing. Just little podcast. Anything and everything could be the sister website, the this and that. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Anything and everything is fine if you have no desire to grow or monetize. Like you should, by all means, sit down at a table, bring some microphones out and like talk through some things, you know, but maybe you don't have to hit record. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean. I think I just went on a rant, but like, I think, I think that podcasting, the good chat shows, the banter, the whippy back and forth, the, you're going to bring me back to something because you remembered the tab that we opened a few minutes ago, but I don't, I think that's Jewish. Do you feel because of the work you do an obligation to stay abreast of all of everything that's out there podcast wise? You do, because Mm -hmm. I've, it's funny. I, I remember one time I heard Rick Rubin talking about on his podcast, music. And he said, at a certain point, you have to give up and realize you're not going to be a completist, right? You're just going to, the stuff that's good is going to find you and you're going to find good stuff and you're going to miss fabulous stuff. And podcasts have gotten to that point where you're going to miss fabulous stuff. But are you intentional at all about, 
oh, enough people are talking about that. I guess I have to go give a listen. Yes. Yeah. So the reason I started my podcast recommendation newsletter in 2017 was because even at that time, I was listening to five or six podcasts every week and I was thinking, there are so many podcasts out there and I'm going to miss them. And how do I possibly find the ones that are worth my time? And how do I help other people find the ones that are worth their time? So my thought was, let me start a newsletter that each week is curated by a different person. They can bring their five podcast episodes on a theme. And then we can have curated lists. So since 2017, every single Sunday night, I've sent out that newsletter. So hundreds and hundreds of lists of podcast recommendations. It's awesome. That's sort of my answer to here's how we cull all of the amazing content that's out there. But when it comes to how I decide to listen to a podcast, you're right. I get hundreds of press releases every week. And some of them are great. Some of them are worth your time. Some of them you're just not going to be able to get to. But what I do and what I usually advise people to do when they're launching a show is get your podcast everywhere. Get your podcast everywhere at the launch. So that means being featured in podcast recommendation newsletters, being featured in newsletters in your niche. So if I'm advising on a Jewish podcast, I'd probably reach out to Tablet and say, like, what what can we do together? Can you still <laughs> listen to podcasts? Because here's the thing, like, to a great extent, I kind of can't anymore. Because like when I listen, work, yeah. the one thing that I hear is like, oh, oh, great cut. Oh, really nice sound design. Like, I don't, I can't get lost in it mm. anymore because I'm so in it. Does it happen to you? No. No? You're still, the magic's still there? Yeah. How does that happen? Um, What do you do while you're listening? Uh, are you walking? Are you cleaning? Are you? Usually nothing. And usually what are you listening sitting to? Sitting on a chair. A whole host of bizarre things that is I it Jewish? stumbled. Is no, it Jewish? Stuff? None okay. of it is. Um, Go for a walk. Do something that you love while you're listening, and then you'll associate listening with that thing. Huh. That's very good Zen advice. Yeah. Really I also nice. love that because then, you know, like during the pandemic, I always used the same walk, and I would remember like what I had heard. Yes, exactly. In a when, specific when you spot, go to that space, and you're, you're like, wow, triggered in your something brain. is amazing. It's like there's something powerful about this. What did you listen to on the way over? It's it's a more, we did a morning interview. Do you do like, do you have your morning shows, or are you just like listening to I was to on things? a meeting, but when the meeting ended, I listened to the Sounds Profitable podcast, which is one that I work on. So that's a boring answer. This morning, I've already listened to— And was that to, a live—was that like an edit of it you were listening to? No, I was live? listening. Okay. So I'm only on one episode per week. They do a few. So I listen to the one that's like, um, here's what's going on in the business of podcasting. And then I co-host a later episode that goes out later in the week about like a breakdown of the news with the co-host. <laughs> okay, now suppose you were appointed podcast czar by President Biden and had unlimited authority— to do whatever you want in podcasting. Name the one or two or three trends in podcasting that you would outlaw immediately. What do we do that's super annoying and just needs to go? This is so fun. Um, too many podcasts don't say their name. <laughs> they think that they, they go through an entire episode and they don't say the name of the show and they don't say their name and they don't say what you're going to get out of this episode. I think that we need to be more intentional about what people are going to get out of this hour that we are giving M More to like old school rappers. My name is, yes. and I'm here to say, I love podcasting <laughs> in a major way. Pretty much. You, you guys do a great job at this. We know what the Sugar segments Hill podcasting are. Thing is basically we, say, we say our names all the time. You say your names. I know who you are. I know what the goal of the show is. I know what I'm going to get out at the end of it. And then another thing that I always recommend is that podcasters should be segmenting their shows so that there are going to be people who love specific segments of your shows and they're going to tune in for news of the Jews and they're going to know the song and they're going to tune in for this and they're going to talk about that. And I think that that is such a beautiful way to market your show because you can also break that up and throw that onto YouTube in different segments. So I would outlaw not doing that if a little bit of a, a workaround over nice. there. Nice. <laughs> okay. Follow up. Were there more trends? I didn't want to. Um, of course, there yeah. are more trends. I would outlaw Joe Rogan. Huh. Good luck with Why? that. <laughs> 
he's a law to himself. I yeah. don't think Why? As I mean, oh man. Other than his well, here's here's what I would opinions. do. Opinions like is it something about the actual no. art of podcasting? I'm, I wouldn't with? actually outlaw him as a person. What I would say is I would outlaw him being the first thing that people see when they think of podcasts because I just don't think it's a great introduction. I would rather them be introduced to a show. Like if you're a Jewish person and you're interested in getting into podcasts, this is a great 101 podcast for you to get into. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. We like to think of ourselves very basic, listening. very elementary school 101. Like this is. <laughs> Real phonics. We're phonics for podcasting. Well, what you are is um, you're giving people a really great introduction into what a chat show can be. And you're also introducing people to the other things that you do within the larger world. I think that's a really great, it's like a newspaper, you know, each week as Mm -hmm. you're getting different segments. What I think Joe Rogan does is expects people to tune in for three hours and then that's what they're used to. And so many people, if they Google podcasts, he's going to come up. That's so they think a podcast is just someone talking for it's three hours. Cast. I have to say, I have this issue with the Ringer podcast, many of which I really like. I feel like they're not tight enough. And I'm like, like Bill Simmons just goes on for hours. And people love Bill Simmons, so they'll handle it. So they'll handle it. But it's like, you sold to Spotify. Like, you can hear things that they say it again and they don't cut it sometimes. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I know you have great editors, right? right. And that frustrates me because I'm just like, is the idea that all your shows are so... I've never said this out loud. It feels but good. It feels good. It feels good. I'm like... I hear that as someone who, I mean, I, th- I think maybe other people hear that too, but you're right. But it's like, we cut so much every week that we're like that. Like even last week, that thing about the kids at the school, I was yeah. like, cut the first set of jokes. The thing the that none one, of our listeners would hear now. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. but I was like- The thing with the guy in the flame. I thought better. of another thing yeah. I, would, I would change. Oh, yeah. Okay. You know when you're listening to a show and there's a dynamically inserted ad and it's really loud and then your ears blow out? So everything needs to be normalized to negative 16 luffs. And that just has to happen. I've always said negative Josh, 16 luffs. You've, you've made Josh's life. In fact, right that was now, the first band Josh. I was in in high school. 16 luff balloons. I, I played, I played synth, the second synth yeah. in negative 16 luffs. We need it though. Spread the word, everybody. Um, <laughs> what's an amazing podcast that never caught on? You know, what's like the way that I would say everyone has to go watch the unbelievable underrated Will Arnett Netflix show Flaked, which was like the best TV show wow. ever made. <laughs> Um, you never saw it, did you? Mm-mm. But now, now you. Have. I have heard of it though. Yeah, it's so good. And I um, think I can. I think I know what the cover art looks like. What the cover art? Exactly. <laughs> I think it's I know. been recommended to you enough that <laughs> yes. you know the cover art. But what's the podcast or two? I'm that, checking my phone. That never hit. That you just direct people to because it was wonderful. It deserved a huge audience. It never got the huge audience it deserved. Okay. Well, this guy is really famous. But I think that this show should be bigger. Mobituaries from Mo Rocca. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've it's had him on. So, yeah. You have? Yeah. We love Mobituaries. Oh, amazing. Yeah. I love him so much. He recently spoke at On Air Fest in Brooklyn, which was a beautiful podcast festival. And I cried of laughter for 45 minutes. He was He's so good. Mobituaries. He's talked about it on our show, but it's a fair point. That so like, good. Yeah, it's big, but like, it's Everybody not should be talking it's about it. It's not massive. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then there's another really great show called The Loudest Girl in the World by Lauren Ober. It's about her decision to seek an autism diagnosis in her 40s. And oh. it is, it's a memoir and it's beautiful and it's funny. And she's one of the most compelling writers writing to speech that I've ever heard. Yeah, please okay. listen to that. I want to get back to your dating life. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> so you're sitting there in a date. Do you use the question of, do you listen to podcasts yes. and what podcasts do you listen to as a sort of like a diagnostic? Very quick first of all, way. I have it in my dating apps. Right. Because you're I, asking for this kind of. Well, first of all, I have a tweet that's like, in this thread, I will share recommendations that I get on dating apps. I'm looking at it right now. It, it is, is so painful. It's so funny what people recommend. Actually, I've been surprised by the podcast that people have recommended. It's not your typical, like, I'm listening to Radio Lab or I'm listening to Joe Rogan or I'm listening to, you know. Unorthodox. Yeah. yeah. You wish, right? right? Yeah, right. Um, I do. It, but it's been Conan O'Brien. It's been Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide podcast. I've been sort of impressed. 
huh. by the by how but that that also speaks to how amazing amazingly diverse podcasts can be and how there's zero monoculture. Has there been listening. though a time in which you're sitting and you really kind of like the guy and it's like or the person or whatever and and then you're like okay now let's see and then the person's like oh yeah and I really like this podcast like check please this is never going to work. Or I don't listen it's to podcasts. It's not that it's more it's usually like oh you work in podcasting um what does that mean or like I don't listen to pod- it's not that I don't hate that if you've never listened to podcasts I'm not I don't need my partner to care about every single thing that I care about but I do need you to respect it. I do need you to respect that I care about it so much. And I've had people not my wife respect it. Does not listen to podcasts, including this one, but she respects the work. Yes. Yeah. That's huge. You know what? I don't I don't um defend clients in court, but I respect the work. Like that that's <laughs> that's what marriage is. Like I don't I don't think <laughs> oh, I should be God. representing her clients. So okay, my favorite thing about this this thread you did where you say, the way to win me over is tell me what podcast you're listening to. Then someone replies and says this, you'll know you've arrived once somebody asks you out just to promote their own podcast <laughs> <laughs> and on and on this thread. So yes. it's like, do you feel like people are like, oh my God, Ariel Nissenblatt, I do have a podcast. Like, do you ever find yourself <laughs> right. being like, does he like me or does he like my platform? I wish that would happen. Oh my God, I should probably just like, I think I would need to go on more dates for that to become a possibility, but... It seems like you're very busy. I am. With all the newsletters, all the podcasts, all the podcasts. I travel a lot too. A lot for work, but yeah. I'm going to Prague on Friday. Obviously went to ChatGPT and said, can you make me an itinerary that includes the Jewish sites? And what did it say? (laughs) Yeah, it it gave me a pretty good itinerary. I thought ChatGPT just wrote term papers for you. It does everything. It'll like give you your travel itinerary? I said, can you make me a three-day travel itinerary for Prague that includes vegan restaurants and Jewish sites? And it did. That's incredible. It's amazing. You can really use it for smart things. I learned this from Kara Swisher with on from Kara Swisher. <laughs> I my only experience of Kara Swisher is her is her cameo on Silicon Valley. Oh yes, I've she never, did talk I don't about read that. her columns and I've never listened She's to her podcast. She's very good, but she was a great. She really was a good. You know actor. what she does? She'll she'll push back against somebody and then she'll go, but go on. You know, she she like it's like a way of um of like softening her argument. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but but keep going. But keep going. Besides Joe Rogan, overrated. Um. I realize that's a you, you can decline to answer. Why? Yeah, it's her it's her business. She might work yeah. for a podcast she thinks is overrated. She well, may be best on a podcast she thinks is overrated. <laughs> honestly, I don't think any podcasts are overrated. We need more listeners in the world. I honestly I think your Joe Rogan point is interesting. You're not saying anything about the con- you're like it's just the format. And, I, and I'm of the not show. here to say that I love Joe Rogan at all. But you're just I think saying his like misinformation is dangerous and his all that stuff is is not great either, but for the sake of He's this sort of like conversation, the the medium. A little I just bit want people to discover a new show as their intro to podcasting. Yeah, yeah. And if if you're curious, listeners, and you need more podcasts to listen to, subscribe to my newsletter. Which the choice, is the choice is obvious. <laughs> Which is you can get it at earbuds.audio. Earbuds Podcast Collective. Can you do dot dot anything now? <laughs> yeah. Can I be Oppenheimer much. dot Oppenheimer? Maybe. I mean, well, you could probably do that's, that fuck You could probably do dot er. So you could do Oppenheim dot, dot er. er. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Ariel Nissenblatt at Ari this and that. Earbuds Podcast Collective, Trailer Park podcast about podcast trailers. You're amazing. This is so fun. This is so fun. Thanks for being on our show. Big, at, big Jew. We're at the pod singularity. She's actually achieved pod integralism singularity. Like, <laughs> I've done is, it. If you died, there would be no industry.
J.Crew, today is an exciting day. We're launching a brand new series called The Archive, created with the support of the National Library of Israel. It's an exploration into their collection, and on each installment, we'll hear Liel speak with the library's head curators about some of their most prized items, letters, and manuscripts. To kick things off, today we're dusting off some old manuscripts of Sir Isaac Newton, Mr. Gravity himself. He wasn't Jewish, but he knew Hebrew and thought a lot about certain Jewish topics. We also have one document in which he sums up all his calculations concerning the expected end of the days. And he comes to the conclusion that it's not before the end of 2060, nor thereafter. That's what's written there. And uh, if you look around how mankind is behaving, maybe he was right. <laughs> I'm Liel Leibowitz, and welcome to The Archive, an exploration of the National Library of Israel. Over the next few months, I'll be guiding you across history, the globe, and this library's amazing collection. We'll hear about Napoleon's near conquest of the Middle East, about Mahatma Gandhi and his correspondence with Hitler, and how Kafka's manuscripts ended up in a, well, Kafkaesque Israeli legal trial. But to start, I want to take you to what Dr. Stefan Litt, one of the library's head curators, was talking to me about. The end of days, or more precisely, Sir Isaac Newton's calculations about the end of days. You know, that Isaac Newton, as in Newtonian physics, Newtonian calculus, Newtonian optics, the apple, gravity. Sir Yitzchak, as I like to call him, was a 17th century polymath, quite possibly the goat, greatest of all time, of physics, who also made seminal contributions to, like, every other field you can imagine. Including, as I discovered at the library, some really apocalyptic ones as well. I am looking at something that looks, you don't even have to read it. In fact, I don't know that I can because it's so crammed together so beautifully, but something that looks like the work of an absolute genius. What am I looking at? Yeah, you are looking at notes. Actually, we have bunches and bunches of notes, many of them without any headlines because he was simply writing down what came up to his mind in the fields of knowledge he was keen to find more insight in. The he Litz referring to is our man, Sir Yitzchak we were looking over some of the notes and manuscripts that the library has. They were dense, sometimes indecipherable, and, well, polyglottic, written in many languages that I couldn't read, but one that I could. He was fluent, of course, in English, of course, in Latin, and ancient Greek was not so far. But as you can see, he was also able to write down Hebrew, and he included Hebrew into his in treatises. In beautiful hand, he writes, Baruch Shem Kvod Ved, may the glory of his kingdom be blessed forever and ever. Okay, so Newton knew Hebrew and some biblical prayers, but he was a Brit and never set foot in Palestine. So it might be a surprise that we in Jerusalem are holding original papers by Isaac Newton, which should be actually in England at least, but they aren't. The story of how these manuscripts, written by Isaac Newton, ended up here in a library in Jerusalem is amazing. Dr. Litt told me that in the 1930s, a famous and influential manuscript collector by the name of 
Avraham Shalom Yehuda acquired part of a Newtonian manuscript collection, roughly 7,500 documents, in a public auction at Sotheby's in London. Side note, the rest of this collection was swooped up by John Maynard Keynes. Yes, that John Maynard Keynes. Anyway, how did these documents end up at Sotheby's? Well, it was at least in part due to the fact that some people just found them kind of embarrassing. All of these documents are dealing with questions that are not related to the, let's say, stereotype, typical topics that we would um, immediately uh, think about when the name Newton pops up. No apples falling from trees. No, no, no apple, no gravity whatsoever. But Newton was intrigued not just by science and uh, questions of math and physics, but also by other important fields of knowledge of his time, which was alchemy and also ancient and biblical history and theology. I think he would not understand at all why we try to separate those disciplines, because for him it was all the same story, you know, and uh, different angles and different uh, approaches. But at the end, everything belongs together. It's the creation of the world, it's mankind and so on. But not everyone agreed with Sir Newton's approach, especially his former employer. The University of Cambridge, they were kind of a bit embarrassed how a person like Newton could have dealt with <laughs> questions of alchemy, which right. is like um, hocus pocus, you know, and theology. This is not pure science. So Cambridge didn't find these papers all that important or necessary, which is how eventually the hocus pocus ended up in the hands of the collector Yehuda. And when Yehuda died in 1951, he donated his entire collection to the library, including the Newtonian alchemy I was now swooning over. So now we know how the notes got here to Jerusalem, but what exactly was in them? What was that hocus pocus all about? It was about the good stuff. So Newton was, of course, a Christian, but he was a bit of skeptic. On the other hand, he was uh, the president of the Royal Society, so he could not be too provocative in his theological attitudes. And in order to relieve his maybe uh, inner pain and his uh, feelings and thoughts, he wrote down many treatises concerning theology, Christian theology, but also related to biblical history and chronology, because he was convinced that you cannot um, avoid it. One day, the last days of mankind will come up. And he was intrigued to know when exactly that will happen. As a scientist, he wanted to calculate. Right, exactly. So and he tried to find out, not just in the Bible, but also in other historical documents and chronologies, what the typical shape of human development and history might be. And he was convinced there must be a rule. So he made calculations from uh, eras given in the Bible and other sources. He was also checking what about the measures of the old temple in Jerusalem, because he was convinced that the end of the day and the last judgment will happen in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. We also have one document in which he sums up all his calculations concerning the expected end of the days. And he comes to the conclusion that it's not before the end of 2060, nor thereafter. That's what's written there. So you can tell by yourself if we are so we have 
yeah. 38 more years. Yeah, yeah right. And uh, if you look around how mankind is behaving, maybe he was right. <laughs> I was so taken with these notes, their wrinkles and their cracks, musty scents that emanated from centuries-old pages, the mystical calculations, the miles that they had traveled to get to us here in Jerusalem, where the very end of days that Newton was describing was supposed to take place. I was so taken with all that that I just needed Dr. Litt to help me with something. I wanted to hear how these notes actually sounded. Give us a snippet, if you don't mind, so we could hear his voice. That's Latin, I see here. Lamina curia quasi corona in sculpta quatuor literaris, nominis ilius quod solis something linguamque purgatis fas tu adive nominare. So he is quoting from a philo of Alexandria, who was an uh, ancient philosopher and historian. Then, of course, he brings in some ancient Greek, because that was philo's language. In general, this is what's so intriguing and what's mostly unknown. Even to people who show interest in the history of science of the 17th and 18th century, that Newton actively did show so much interest in those. Yes, Newton may be best known for his theories about calculus and gravity and a bunch of other important things they teach our kids in school. But the notes I had been looking at, which are all available online, by the way, at the National Library's site, were his application of his scientific genius towards something just as grand, faith. Even if this kind of faith got him a little bit into the apocalyptic weeds. And that's the very dense summary of his calculations. And he says, okay, we have a frequency of 2,300 years, and this frequency brings us here. Therefore, the 2,300 years do not end before the year 2132, nor after 2370. The times of half-line do not end before 2060, nor after. And that's what does it mean, the time of happen? Um, I think the timeline of, of mankind. And that's the concluding sentence. So what a what a way to end a, a note. <laughs> yeah, okay, so this is the paper. Remember it. <laughs> Looking for signs and patterns wherever you could find them. Exactly. That's so that's amazing. Yeah, it is. <laughs> From the archives of the National Library of Israel, this is Leah Leibowitz signing off. Until next time. Hey, J.Crew. Ever wondered what the Rambam's handwriting actually looked like? Or what about the theological ruminations running through Sir Isaac Newton's head when that apple fell down on it? Did you know that in addition to building the walls of Jerusalem, Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent also wrote love poems? 
These and dozens of other amazing treasures are now available to view in 101 Treasures from the National Library of Israel, a stunning fine art volume richly illustrated with high-quality photographs of manuscripts, books, maps, posters, music, and more accompanied by stories about these significant works and the intriguing people behind them from one of my favorite places in the world, the National Library of Israel. The book, again, is 101 Treasures from the National Library of Israel, now available on Amazon. And also, on October 22nd, the National Library of Israel opens its new building, a stunning architectural feat where these and many other objects of our heritage and culture will be on display for you to experience firsthand. So make sure to include Jerusalem's newest destination in your travel plans. The National Library of Israel, your story, our story, and one of my favorite places in the world. To the mailbox, one letter this week that I want to read, and a lot of you wrote in and said nice things about me when you learned that I was leaving the show at the end of the month. Thank you. I'm honored. Keep them coming. I wanted to read this one because it really touched me um, and moved me in a very special way that, that, that the letter writer didn't know it was going to. Dear Unorthodox, in the early 2000s, I bought a CD of Yasha Heifetz playing, among several other pieces, the Vinyovsky Violin Concerto Number no. 2. As a prolific collector of 19th century pieces for violin and orchestra, this was not my first copy of that piece. As I listened to the third movement, Heifetz played the opening notes so fast that they initially did not register in my mind. I found myself playing the third movement two or three times before my hearing adjusted to the speed of the notes he played. Fast forward about a decade or so, and I'm listening to Unorthodox for the first time. Now, I have heard the slur, fast-talking New Yorker, much of my life. I had never experienced it. Having grown up in Buffalo, I guess it might have been part of the culture I was living in. But 30-plus years in North Texas, and I was no longer used to the speed with which some people talk. Because the first time I listened to Mark speak on the podcast, I found myself repeating the same section a couple of times before the words <laughs> and the speed with which he spoke registered in my mind. I will always remember him not as the corduroy rav, but as that fast-talking New Yorker. And I realized he must be bristling, being from Massachusetts. That fast-talking New Yorker from Unorthodox, who spoke at the speed of Heifetz. Samuel Prince, Plano, Texas. Well, Shmuel, well, Sammy Prince, th thank you, I guess. I'm happy to be the Corduroy Rav or your fast-talking New Yorker. But what you didn't know, except I mentioned it maybe on an episode four years ago or something, but you probably didn't know, is that no violinist means more to me than Yasha Heifetz. Why? Because my grandfather, Walter, who was a self-taught music aficionado and, and you know grew up in an impoverished home, one of eight children, the son of a cobbler, Benny, Benny the bootmaker, fell in love with classical music, as did several of his siblings, and had a, a wonderful collection of classical records. And there was nobody he revered more than Yasha Heifetz. And every once in a while, he was visiting and he was leaving and he slipped me a little money, which would have been $10 or something. It would often come tucked into a little piece of scrap paper. He was very frugal. He would reuse paper. A little piece of scrap paper that would say, you know, to my wonderful grandson, Mark, in honor of Yasha Heifetz. And he would do this for my siblings as well. If you got a 20 from grandpa, you called it, it was Heifetz money, Yasha Heifetz money. It was just my grandpa's way of honoring Yasha Heifetz, saying something sweet to us, maybe trying to make us curious about who Yasha Heifetz was. 
And I swore when I became a dad that periodically I would give my kids Yasha Heifetz money. I would just, here's $5, you know, go to the corner store, get yourself a smoothie with this, with the Yasha Heifetz money. And I've done it a couple times, but not for many years. And you, sir, have reinvigorated me a commitment to just, you know, once in a while, give out some Yasha Heifetz money. So to Samuel Prince, thank you for being a listener and a Yasha Heifetz fan. We have been asking you to give us reviews. Tell us what you really, really think. And so if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, or even if you don't, fire up that app and leave us a review. I want to read my favorite new five-star review titled, The Show Never Fails to Make Me Smile. I enjoy connecting with my tribe. You keep me laughing. This is my go-to show when I need to relax and smile. The intelligence is high. The repartee is clear. It makes me feel pride and connect with my people. They are all super smart and informed. I love Stephanie's bubbly laugh and quick comebacks. Mark's insights and Liel's insistence on being proud and on sticking with being himself. He's also super funny, as they all are. I like the consistent format, and I even sing along with NOTJ. Thank you, J-Bosses. I guess we are bosses of the J Crew, which I, I don't see myself as no. a boss of the J Crew, but I, I love this review and it's amazing. Two others I will read quickly because I'm just reading nice things about us. Uh, why not? This one's titled, They Feel Like Family, Five Stars. I love my J Crew and the stories, news, pop culture, wisdom they share on a weekly basis. Hoping they make it to California for a future IRL event. Thank you for all that you do. Here's another five stars, a bit irreverent, really informative, and totally enjoyable. I think we should steal that as a tagline. So anyway, leave us reviews, build our ego, help people find us, uh, and we appreciate it. As this episode comes out, we're about to finish up Passover and be ready to dive into the carbs again. And what better way than to share this interview from our Wilmington, Delaware Gentile of the Week, Andrea Wakefield, owner of Liel's favorite Italian restaurant, Mrs. Rubino's. Enjoy. Our Gentile of the Week is Andrea Wakefield, a fourth-generation Delawarean, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and a co-owner of Mrs. Rubina's restaurant, the world's greatest restaurant. Oh, thank you so much. She's That's the so great-granddaughter nice. of Mrs. Rubina's herself. The restaurant <laughs> was founded in 1940 and still serves the greatest food on earth. And uh, there are pictures, if you enter the restaurant, uh, Polaroids of people who have yes. been coming there for long. Uh, Nancy and Lionel here have been going for 40-odd years. I'm a noob, only 20-something, I would say, but catching up. Uh, thank you for being on. Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice. So, Andrea, have you been to the J before? I have not been here before. What do you think so far? I and- love it so far. <laughs> it's great. Well, when I walked in, too, I noticed on the front desk where the lady was, one of my best friends from high school, her parents must have donated the desk or something because it said, <laughs> from the Born and Zutz family. So, oh, in Judaism... We will put plaques on anything we put. <laughs> so it is the Zoran Butts desk. Um, in the bathroom, I actually urinated at the back of the, <laughs> the Goldfarb urinal. That's so funny. Shmuel Goldfarb in 1927 donated that urinal. Loved, loved that urinal. He was a man of small stature, and there's actually the story there. <laughs> he wanted a lower urinal. Oh, that's funny. For men who wear a 40 short. Oh my so goodness. yes, we could name something after you here. 
But it's so nice, so nice. And I just think it's, it's, it's very welcoming. So tell us, tell us about growing up in, in this, you know, dynasty, in this dynasty of amazing food. Well, I eat a lot of Italian food. I can tell you that. Um, it was really interesting. I mean, you know, we'd have Italian food for Mrs. Rubino's probably like one, two, three, four times a week because my mom hated to cook. And it's actually my dad's side of the family. So my dad was always the cook in the family. So, you know, if he was busy with work, he would just bring Rubino's home. And as, as a child, did you always know that this, this is the destiny, this is the legacy one day I am going to be? I never really knew that. When I graduated from high, I mean college, I was a teacher for a couple of years. I really didn't, didn't like it. And then I had two children. I, didn't, I quit teaching. I had two children. And when my children got to be like four or five years old, I wanted to go back to work. And um, my dad was like, if you're going to go back to work, go work at Mrs. Rubino's because you can, you know, I'll be your boss and you can do whatever you want. And <laughs> if your kids are sick, you can stay home. Or if, you know, you want to go on vacation, you can do it. So, so I was like, that sounds like a pretty good deal. So I did it. So. And how long has it been? I've been working there pretty steadily since, well, like full time since like 1990. I did take off a little bit when my kids were born. Did you at some point learn to cook? Oh, I've always loved to cook. Your so. mom didn't like to cook. My mom but you like to cook. cook. Yeah, I love to cook. Italian, other things as well? I like or? to cook anything. So I read a novel this past summer called Marrying the Ketchups, which is a very good book, by the oh, way, a, about an Irish family in Chicago that runs a restaurant, a multi-generational family restaurant. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they do is they have family dinner at the restaurant. Would you guys have we do. reunion meals and stuff? Or like if the cousins, do people, and how many descendants are there? It's fourth generation. Are there a whole bunch of cousins? There who are. Feel like this is our restaurant too. And they all come in and they expect like free rolls? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's only one remaining Rubino. My grandmother died. In um, 90, uh, no, 2004. But her youngest sister is still alive. She's 92. And so she and her husband, who's 93, they come at least once a week with their kids and that kind of thing. And they never expect to get it for free, but I always treat them. Well, Tell us about grandma. What, what made her start the restaurant? How, well, it was my great-grandmother. Great so grandma, unfortunately, right. she died when I was born in 68. But I was going As through this. As you were born? No. <laughs> she, she died the year I was born. Got it. So the way that Mrs. Rubinas came to be was when my great-grandmother died, she had seven children. And my grandmother was the oldest female. So when she started the restaurant, uh, my grandmother sort of worked with her side by side. And then she had, you know, many more children. But when she died, she left the restaurant to the whole, all the siblings. And the only one that was really interested in it was my grandma. So my father and my grandmother bought the restaurant from the rest of the siblings. So that's how it sort of came to be. And you kept, the, is everything as your great-grandmother made at the same recipe? Oh, yeah, we have the, the same? same recipes. And it's funny, we don't have anything written down. You know, we know the recipes as a dish of onions, a bowl of garlic. <laughs> You know, this many, you know, and then I have these new people that come in and they're like, well, where's the recipe book? And I was like, well, it's a dish of garlic. <laughs> and how long this does many it take tomatoes. for them to get it? Because I'm picturing like that show, The Bear, the Chicago restaurant. And it's like they have a whole language and a way of doing things. And when new people come in, it's tough. So how long until they understand? Well, luckily, I've had the same people that have worked for me for a really long time. So when the new guy comes in, it's sort of they sort of takes them a minute to get used to that you know, cooking by sight, not by a book or whatever. See, this yeah. is this is so amazing to me because so many horrible things happen to, uh, I'm a gentleman of noble proportions. Uh, I, I love to eat. And so many bad things have happened to food because food is now, you know, cool. Like there are celebrity chefs and like TV shows and like websites and stuff. 
And you come into Mrs. Rabinas, and the thing that I really admire is like, this actually feels exactly like a bubby, like a grandmother is cooking you an amazing meal. Like, uh-huh. was there ever a point in which you're like, we need to overdo everything. We need to have like, you know, molecular gastronomy cooking. Of- no, we've never done that. And it's funny because my cousin and I work together. She's 71. And if I make one change or anything, she's always like, no, we're not. Can't do that because we've done it this way. She's like, this so is a bowl years. and a half of onions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't try to. Right. So, you know, we've kept the recipes the same over the years. The only thing we have changed is the way we produce the spaghetti sauce and the ravioli. You know, years ago, my grandmother that died, she used to hand make all the raviolis. Well, that was when the restaurant was just one room. And I was thinking about it, like, she made so many raviolis. She was like my size, but her arms were like beefcakes <laughs> <laughs> because she, you know, would make all these raviolis. So, like, when my dad and my grandmother bought the restaurant, we bought a ravioli machine. So we still mix the dough, and it's the same mixture, but it's just, you know, we can mass produce. And the same thing with the spaghetti sauce. You know, for years we had this little Ukrainian woman. Her name was Luba, and she would stir the sauce all day long. <laughs> she would stand on a milk crate and you know, stir, you know, several pots of sauce. So now we have a big, huge kettle that we, you know, put all the you know ingredients in, and it cooks for hours, and you don't have to stir it. Technology. So, Technology, right? Yes. Well, I have to say, I did have some ravioli upstairs, and— some pasta with tomato sauce. It was unbelievable. Oh, thank you so much. It was we like do, Luba herself was we just. Do have, um, <laughs> we do have the original where you take the dough and you make it into, sorry, into like sheets. That was the original that my great-grandfather bought by trading chickens for this machine. And I don't know, I, we were on the Guy Fieri show, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dies, and that's one of the things that Guy pointed out. Um, you know, there are new machines out there that you could get, you know. And my brother, who does all the pasta, he said, this one works just fine for me. So, so how, like, we don't have enough chickens right now <laughs> to upgrade. <laughs> Which relatives, I'm hearing that you have a cousin who's involved, your brother. How many relatives are involved right now? Right now, it's my cousin, my brother, and I. As far you know, How old are your kids now? My kids are 25 and 26. Are they in the business? Are they want to go in the business? Are they? Well, my daughter is very interested in food. She actually lives in Italy, which is ironic because my great-grandmother immigrated from Italy from Torino at the age of 25. And my daughter actually just moved to Torino at the wow. age of 25. <laughs> so it was kind of crazy. Speaking um, of which, uh, the, the Little Italy neighborhood here, uh, it's it's really kind of unique. Tell us a little bit about the neighborhood because it feels like a Little Italy. It, it, well, there's still, you know, we still have the corner grocery store and the corner this. And there are still a lot of people that have lived there forever. Did they but all come it, from one specific place? In the yeah, Little? it's basically all? between Lincoln and Union Street. No, in, in Italy, are they? Oh, open? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, Union I don't. I don't. I don't know the answer to that question. I don't. I mean, I guess. Well, Wilmington was a very popular place to move if you immigrated, and also Newcastle, Delaware. So, but you know, all the guys sort of know each other. It was really fun. Um, about in July, we had like all the old guys from the neighborhood came back to Mrs. Rubino's. And I think my dad was the youngest one there. He's 82. I mean, and then up to my great uncle, who's 92. And they all got together. Um, There was probably like 50 of them. And it was so fun to see them all, you know, get back together. And it was amazing to see all the different, you know, how successful a lot of these guys became after just coming here, you know, as, as children. It was just crazy. They were well-nourished. <laughs> Speaking of, of, of generations, as I mentioned, when you walk into the restaurant, there are all these Polaroid pictures of people who've been coming right. for a very long time. Again, I'm new, just a couple of decades. My children have been eating there uh, since the day they were born. 
what do you feel kind of seeing, you know, kids that come in now bring their own kids oh, to the restaurant? Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. My, my cousin especially gets to see it more because she's been there much longer than I have. But she's like, I remember when that child was born. Now they're getting married. They're bringing their grandkids. You know, it goes way back. And then we also have the, I knew him when he came here with his first wife. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, it's it's been fun, and you you do get to know customers, and it's funny you don't really know their names, but you know like um, oh he's the lasagna and he's the grilled chicken with the that or that's all that matters, right? Here comes Mr. Pastina, you know <laughs> we, we have names for everybody. Do you have a particular waiter or waitress or maitre d' who or host who's been who's the face of the place who ever knows everybody knows yes, everything? Yes, we have a lady by the name of Linda, but she goes by Lottie. She's worked there I think like twenty five years. And we actually have a dish named after her on the menu. And she's a hoot. She just, you know, she makes a big fuss over everybody. And when it's your birthday, I have a birthday in the house. And if, if it's your first time visiting Mrs. Rubino's, we got a virgin in the house. <laughs> so, so it's was fun. Lottie like the most powerful person in Delaware? Like you want to get in with her? She's something else. She's a, uh, I say she's a uh, jack of all trades. If you're sick, she's a doctor. If you're, you know, if you're, if your dog's sick, she's a vet. You know, she's one of those kind of people. You know, so, you told us something really fascinating about the immigration waves and how that sort of led to the creation of this restaurant and your great grandmother mm-hmm. cooking. Could you tell our audience a little bit about that? Sure. So when my great grandmother immigrated, she immigrated with my great grandfather. But the street that she lived on was um, Howland Street, which was just a little bit down from where Mrs. Rubino's is now, and a lot of the. A lot of the people that came didn't uh, just just the the men the men of the family came. So she would cook and invite this guy over, that guy over, whose wives didn't come over yet. And so all of a sudden, like people were showing up at her house at dinner time because they, you know they were hungry and she was a good cook. <laughs> so somebody said to her, you, "You you should probably open a restaurant." So that's when in 1940. She bought the building where Mrs. Rubino still is today. And she and my great-grandfather lived upstairs. And then she had, you know, the, the dining room downstairs. And that's how it started. So before we let any Gentile of the Week off the stage, we okay. have a tradition. Okay. Which is because we have the honor of knowing you, but you also have the honor of sitting on the stage with an internationally recognized panel of Jewish experts. Don't <laughs> laugh. Um, certified by the chief rabbinate of Israel, Algeria, and South Africa. And... Um, so if you have any question for us about Jews, Jewish culture, Jewish food, we are here to answer it. And I believe you did submit a question. I did. I was wondering, um, you know, every time I've ever, well, I have a few friends that are Jewish and, you know, growing up with a lot of Jewish friends, I always remember during the holidays or during celebrations, everyone would make a brisket and they would make it differently. <laughs> I had one friend that put like Coca-Cola on it, another one that would soak it in red wine, the other one would, you know, at this so I just wondered, why is that popular in the Jewish community? Brisket. Why the brisket? That's a great question. Incredible question. Well, you know, for one thing, uh, I, I would say for We're all going to pretend that we know the answer. Go ahead, Leo. <laughs> Leo, you start. Well, oh, you know, Mark, as <laughs> yeah. I was saying uh, to Guy Fieri the other day, <laughs> uh, look, I, I think it's because of brisket, um, kind of like, you know, beef bourguignon. It's like, it's like this cut of meat that is traditionally for really poor people, which is what Jews have historically been. Uh, it's not the first or most often not even the second pass. It's kind of the tougher meat because it cooks for a really long time right. and gets soft no matter what you do because you stick it in the pot and wait, you know, wait your turn. Uh, and you could also, as you said, like you could also 
marinate it or prepare it in whatever way you want. So no matter what ingredients you happen to have, no matter what region you live in, it's sort of very versatile and adaptable. I'd like to think just like Jews. Oh, that was nice. I can't do better than that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I, I can't add to that except to say that um, it is a staple of, of Ashkenazi, which is a European Jewish culture that the immigrants brought over. And mm-hmm. I, I'm sure for the reasons that Liel said, it was one of their staples. So it came from, it came from great-grandmothers. and gra- Every Bubby, every grandmother, except both of my grandmothers, <laughs> knew how to make a brisket. So, I, and do you like brisket? When I do. It? It's delicious, yeah. Yes, I make it with, uh, with, with smoked cinnamon and Turkish coffee coated. <laughs> Uh, well, that really? good. And even though it's yeah, and even though it's delicious, let me tell you what I'm thinking about when I'm eating my brisket. What? This is Rabina. <laughs> <laughs> my in-laws are sitting right here. I mean, they would attest to it every time we come here. How 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 long does it take for me to go to Mrs. Rabina's upon arrival? Like 30 minutes? <laughs> that's right. It has oh, that's to be. so funny. Immediate. Thank you so much. You bet. Andrew Wakefield, thank you for being thank our gentile of the week. Me. Oh, and awesome. hold on. For no pressure. We know there are a lot of things on the walls at Mrs. Rubino's. Oh, but here is your official unorthodox certificate of appreciation oh, for being our so Gentile much. of the Week. Oh, thank you, Andrew Wakefield. That's okay. Our you guys are posing. For we'll get you afterwards. Our <laughs> photographer okay. disappeared. Thank you so thank much. You so thank you. It was so nice to meet you. you. And the dinner was delicious. It was amazing. It was, there had Mrs. Rubino's waiting for us in the green room. And Josh and I also went for lunch. Just saying. <laughs> it was a double. So- Mazel tovs. Uh, Liel, do you have a mazel tov? I do. One, the Wall Street Journal reporter, Evan Gershkovich, uh, who is now, sadly, the first American journalist since the Cold War detained by the Soviet, by which I mean the Russians, um, held on, you know, ridiculous trumped up charges by Moscow. Uh, here's hoping for his quick and safe return home. Ezra Hashem. Stephanie. I have a shout out to Slate. Gabfest listener Judy from Western Massachusetts, who called into the show to recommend uh, our show, Gate Crashers, hosted by Mark Oppenheimer. And it was just delightful. And it was it was really nice. And she's she's lovely. And if you're listening, Judy, thank you. Judy from Western Mass, I'll see you at Antonio's Grinders or at Leechmere's or wherever in Western Mass we bump into each other. And my Mazel Tov this week, uh, I have two. One is to the University of Connecticut, my adoptive home state's basketball team for winning the men's NCAA championship. Uh, It's been a while. I remember in high school when they were coming up big and then they won a few championships. And it's been since 2005 that the men's team has been in the final four. The women's team has been uh, crowning our state with glory for for quite a while in there. But gentlemen, good to have you back. Uh, Congratulations. And also to a special listener who wrote to me to talk about some very special news. Uh, Her family is growing, and she was kind enough to share that with me in a lovely exchange about big families and about um, all the joys that come with them. And, you know, we say, you know, in in good time. Uh, So it's not actually a mazel tov superstitiously. It's just in good time. But uh, she knows who she is. And to that whole family, a big, hearty congratulations. And finally, the biggest mazel tov of them all... You know you make me wanna To our own showrunner, Courtney Hazlett, who became a bat mitzvah this past weekend. She has been working so hard, learning to read Hebrew, chanting her portion um, on top of all the work she does with us. It's really been been amazing. Um, and we're so we're so excited for her. I totally wanted to crash her party and see if they played Coke and Pepsi, see, <laughs> see if there was a photo booth, all of that. 
And she's part of a, an adult cohort of people, 12 people who all became Bar Bat Mitzvah to, together. And I just think it's it's amazing. We were able to, to join in virtually to watch her and to support her. And it's just, it's just amazing. And we're so proud of her. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by Mark Oppenheimer and Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And the team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, and Jerome Rousquet, with administrative support from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please get our brand new swag at tabletstudios.com. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. And our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. You can send us snail mail at P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 13001. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Amy Small at Ojave Sedek Synagogue in Berlin. Vermont, and we come to you from Tablet Studios, where we are still eating the matzah. Shalom, friends. <laughs> <laughs>